Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. I think my life would be greatly impoverished if it weren't for the wonderful time with Shakespeare from college until today. Pretty close to being enough to get to perform it, to have something of the sensation of what it's like to be able to see into the world the way Hamlet does. It's a beneficial feedback loop into your whole nature. His way of understanding the world built into the language, opposition, all of these things held in wonderful narrative. They have no bottom. That was Sam Waterston. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Today on the show is Sam Waterston. And this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time now. He's an actor. I think you probably know that. He's been doing it for over 50 years. And uh, because of that fact, I'm not going to do a formal introduction. Instead, uh, I'd like to point out why this episode is especially unusual and unique to this show. For one, 15 minutes before the podcast, I got a call from Catherine Waterston, who is Sam's daughter. Keep in mind that right before I do these, I'm frantic, I have to go to the bathroom, I'm anxious, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about or asking, and uh, she calls And uh, she did not know we were going to do this. I told her at the last minute. And the first thing she says is, well, have you done your research? Which is a great thing to hear right before you do a podcast for an hour. Uh, That was unusual. And in that conversation, Catherine gave me good pointers and things to talk about that I would have not had if not for her. So first off, uh, we've been doing this show for four years and we've never had someone's daughter call in to give assistance, but um, I'm very thankful that she called. The second thing is that when Sam arrives, he arrives with his wife of 44 years. That is uh, definitely a first on this show. We've never had a partner come in and sit in the control room. It was a real Waterston family affair is what I'm trying to say. And the last thing is that you may have noticed that Sam Waterston uh, comes from a generation of actors 
that are often very reluctant to give interviews. I don't know what it is. I have some idea, but I don't exactly know. But for Sam, this is a highly unusual setting. He has not sat for a long-form interview of any kind, except for perhaps a couple of occasions in his life with Charlie Rose. But aside from that, uh, he hasn't exactly felt comfortable sharing and airing his thoughts publicly. But he happens to be at a new place in his life where the kind of dialogue we try to have on this show each week is something he was open to. So uh, this was truly a special episode for so many reasons, as you're about to hear. And I have to say, without hyperbole, that taping this podcast was truly an honor of a lifetime. And I feel in this moment distinctly blessed to be doing this show for you, wherever you are listening. Um, boy, I, uh, I love doing this, and I love sitting with Sam. So I have a feeling you may feel the same after this episode. Without further ado, here is the one and only... Sam Waterston. Sam Waterston. Yes. How are we doing? I'm fine. How are you? So about 20 minutes before this podcast, your daughter calls me, kind of frantically. And she says, oh my God, you're going to do this with my dad. Here are some things I think you should talk about. Oh, really? We'll save those for later. Um, she did mention, and it's maybe the place to start, that you are in a moment of perhaps more self-reflection than usual. Maybe that's just the nature of getting older. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, I think it is. I, the way I would describe it, I guess, is that I've been entertaining an, an awful lot of questions for an awful long time. And now it feels like uh, if I'm ever going to get down to cases, I better, <laughs> I better do it soon. I was talking to Martin Sheen about this, and I said that I've always wanted to figure out everything and understand everything, and, uh, and now it feels like I'm running out of time, so I better get on the job. Well, there are a bunch of things we can try to find the answer to. Oh, good. You can help me. I'm going to try to help you. Please. I also hope you can help me. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't <laughs> count on that. Let's start with this on the nature of reflecting on the past. In 1939, uh, your mother is performing in a play. I believe it's Anthony and Cleopatra. Uh, she's pregnant with you. Uh, she would later go on to say that this is uh, one of the reasons you decided to become an actor. Mm -hmm. She also painted the sets for that. Right. And uh, the sets were Picasso-esque. Mm. And we still have these two 20-foot by four or five-foot wide figures that she painted for that show. What do you make of the sort of genetic nature of that question? Could it possibly be passed on? It feels like we're making things up. <laughs> but but it's okay. I mean, they're perfectly good things to make up. That's all and we have. It sounds like she made, made that up too. And the way I experienced it with her when she was alive was friendly, complimentary, loving. So it's a nice story. I like, I like it. Story, narrative, is an unrecognized fundamental appetite, I think. We can't do without it. So if there's not some fact-based story to tell, then we make one up. But even fact-based stories are embroidered into a narrative so that the facts make a kind of sense. At six, your father cast you in a play. He did. You described that time... Uh, as a joyous time because it meant that you could stay up with him late yeah, and have undivided attention, which is what every child in a crowded family wants. Yeah. What are the memories that come into your head? The real part, the nugget that I remember is sitting in that dark theater next to my father while the play that he was directing was in the bright lights up at the end of the room and... That's what I remember. Mm. 
How did your parents describe you as a child, as you grew up? I think I was disobedient. I think I was, this is not things that they accused me of, but uh, I was the third child. I got away with a lot of stuff that my older siblings didn't, and I liked that a lot. Mm. Um, I still, to this day, am a terrible shirker of dishwashing. <laughs> but they used to have charts and stuff in my family for whose turn it was every week. And I, somehow I would be absent on the key day. You just happened to disappear. I don't know, ill. We really don't know where he went. But he had, he had a meeting, I think it was. The teenage meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a very structured, uh, put-together home. Not at all. Not at all. No, that was about the only piece of real serious organization we had. My father was an academic, mm-hmm. uh, a, a really <clears throat> cultured and brilliant guy, and multilingual. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a painter and, uh, you know, profoundly eccentric. <laughs> so, no, there, there was precious little... There was some order. My father was English. He had some of the habits of... He brought from England to America of being together. Would you describe yourself that way? I don't know how interesting it is <laughs> how I would describe myself. I, I'm curious to know how other people perceive me, but curious, I mean, I guess I really want them to like me or I wouldn't be in this business. Mm-hmm. But how would I describe myself? Gee, that's a big question. A seeker, I guess. We'll find the answer at the end of this. Okay, good, because... I think so. (laughs) What did your parents say about you in high school thinking about wanting to act or wanting to make something? They were both really tempted by the life of being artists. And they almost did it. My father was a very elegant writer and wanted to make writing his life. And my mother was a very gifted painter, and a lot of her friends made a life around their artistic pursuit. But the way my parents tell it is that they went up upstate to uh, Woodstock, Vermont, not Woodstock, New York. But there was an artist community there, and they were absolutely shocked and appalled at all the little progeny of artists running around unsupervised. And they decided that they wanted family and they wanted to do it right um, and not uh, with with their left hand, like it seemed all these people in this community were doing. So, so they, they decided not to, yeah. Did that story ever deter you in the beginning from venturing into this field? I think, it was, I think it was more like it was the path not taken, so they were kind of curious what it would be like if you actually did it. Right. So before you do it, in September of 1957, you were attending Groton, a Massachusetts prep school. Um, at the time, President Eisenhower uh, dispatched federal troops to enforce the integration of Central High School in Little Rock. Arkansas. In your class, there was a student named Tom from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this person? Mm -hmm. Uh, You said that he favored equal rights and integration, but if those soldiers had entered his town, he would have risen in protest. Mm -hmm. Walk me through what it was like to be a active high school 17-year-old person in 1957 as the country was going through these pretty massive systemic changes? Well, first I should say that that's what I remember Tom saying, but that's not what Tom remembers. I've told this story before, and I guess he heard it and he objected. Mm -hmm. Until I was out of college, until I was in New York, uh, I didn't have any feelings about race, really, except for what we read in the newspapers. And so that conversation rose out of what we read in the newspapers. As far as interaction was with African-Americans or 
people of a different skin color or even from a different background. Uh, it was really very limited. I led what you might call a sheltered life. But that wasn't its only characteristic. It was, uh, there was an enormous respect for learning. There were, in the abstract, the principles of inclusion and uh, open-mindedness and tolerance and all of that stuff were very much in the forefront of how I was brought up mm -hmm. and taught to think. But that was really the first time that, um, that the wider world intruded about race in my life. And my father was one of these people who, who led a, a quiet and reserved life. And he, like me, saw the many... I mean, I got it from him, I think, looking at all the many sides of a question and, and uh, always walking around the statue, not settling on one point of view. Um, but in big moments... Uh, he didn't have any trouble at all rising to the occasion. And sometimes he's told this on, against himself. It was wrong, but he acted. So when World War II came, he was still a British subject. He didn't have to go to the war. Uh, and he volunteered because he, he heard the call. And when the Freedom Riders were riding in their buses in the South... And the New York Times was printing articles about Martin Luther King's association with communists and stuff. He went down there and rode on a bus. So Groton was a boarding school. One of my classmates was the first African-American who had been admitted to school. Hmm. And it caused a gigantic uproar. Some people were very upset. And another classmate of mine, his father, wrote a letter to Time Magazine, which was published. So this is how I gradually came to understand that there were these gigantic injustices going on in the world. But it wasn't really until I was out of college that I began living in, a, in an integrated society. Before we move on into what happens in your career, I think it's important to understand, for people who don't know you, including me, what kind of conversations did you have with your parents about the kind of person you ought to be in the world? Both my wife and I uh, have lived operating under the uh, assumption that to be a good parent, the, the only thing you can do is try to be, become as decent a person as you possibly can and then let your children see it. And then they will take from that whatever is useful to them. Um, but then I realized that you know Kate, and, and she would also be saying, and you also talked a blue streak about what you thought we ought to do. So I think we, as a family, uh, talked freely. I think the part of society that we all occupied wasn't necessarily, you know, laying it all on the table and talking about everything, getting everything out there and sorting everything out and digging into the hidden things and what did you really mean and all that stuff. I, that was not at all the world that we grew up in. My mother grew up in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, and Boston was a very buttoned-up society against which she and her wonderful aunt, Caroline Atkinson, who was also a painter, rebelled in their respective generations, but not by um, burning their bras or anything, but just by not living that way. Mm -hmm. So I think we spoke freely, but we didn't talk about everything and we didn't air everything. Did you feel like you could talk freely when you leave home, you go to university at Yale? Mm. You uh, seem to find your footing or, or calling, if it's meant to be a calling, uh, in waiting for Godot. Yeah, you're on stage, and there is this moment you've described that I'm going to just let you describe because I'll just botch it. It was so cool. I was playing Lucky and waiting for Godot. The director uh, was some input from me, but really very largely all his own, made a map 
for the lucky speech, which is a very long monologue. You, you, you know it. Mm-hmm. I, well, I can't perform it for you, but no, I, I, but I can do the first sentence probably. You're, you're welcome to. Given the existences uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal god, qua 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 qua, with a white beard, qua 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 qua, outside time beyond extension, who from the heights of divine athapia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly for reasons unknown, but time will tell, and it goes on like that. I could I couldn't fact check you. <laughs> I think that was close. It sounded pretty good to me. So, it was split into two halves, and the the idea was. That for the first half, Lucky, who is presented in the play and who has a tremendous amount of education and erudition and is now Pazzo's slave, and Pazzo every once in a while orders him to, you know, make a show of his erudition. So Lucky starts the speech with an enormous amount of confidence that it's going to turn into a sentence and make some sense. And then... According to the way it was laid out, about halfway through, he loses that confidence and it becomes a kind of race to try to at least make a sentence. And it's a kind of panic and horror that it's not working out. So we did this. We only did about five performances. The first performance, the Yale Daily News, which is the newspaper of the university, came and saw it and wrote a review saying that I was too smart for the part. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that meant. Because you weren't smart enough to know what it meant? Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyway, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. <laughs> you just set me right up for it. <laughs> and so every performance thereafter, I was coming up to the speech and wondering what the heck it could be that was making me, the actor, smarter than the character I was playing, and I couldn't figure it out. out. On the last night, I was coming up to... And and Lucky's on stage carrying bags around and doing what he's told to do for quite a long time, so there's a long long time to think this over, and I I did a lot of thinking. And then just before uh, Pazzo says, Speak, pig, the thought went through my head, I'm never going to figure this out, uh, and I'm never going to get to do this again. And if I don't get it tonight, that's it. He said, speak, pig, and I thought, I'm never going to get to speak again. And it informed the speech, and the audience thought the first half was hilarious, and then I paused for breath, and they burst into applause, I inhaled, they shut up as one person, and then I went into this panic thing, and you could have heard a pin drop. And then he took my hat off or whatever it was that made me shut up, and I fell to the ground, and there was another long pause, and the crowd went wild. And I thought, I want to do this. (laughs) It's such a wonderful thing, and it... Every once in a while it happens where you and the audience are of one mind. That's a really great feeling. Did you know at the time that it was a special moment? Well, it's, it's so m- much now a part of my myth, my narrative. That the self-mythology. I can't, yeah, I can't really say. But I do know that it, would, that it hit me hard enough that I thought I... I ought to get away from this if I could. Because even in school, there were teachers who saw that I was attracted to acting and warned me against the the Babylonian mm-hmm. sin pot that, uh, right. that the show business was, in, and also its tremendous uncertainty. It was your parents going to Woodstock. Yeah. And so I, I went to France with the idea that I would... I took my junior year abroad and I went to France with the idea that I would never act again. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least last? I would take a year off, and it lasted a few weeks. <laughs> you know, maybe the better question is not about whether you knew it was a special moment, but rather, are you someone who's 
capable of recognizing a good thing when it's a good thing? Are you grateful moment to moment for the things that happened to you, that have happened to you? Yes, I think so. Insufficiently grateful, surely. Why insufficient? Because, this is going to get really corny, but I mean, life is an extraordinary gift, blessing. And I feel like my life has been just a cornucopia of good fortune and blessings and the whole thing. There's a series of years from an outside perspective where things in your career start to happen. 1972 through about 1974 seemed to me to be the kind of years, if you were to ever write a memoir, that you would dedicate many chapters to mm. for a whole bunch of reasons. In 72, you're playing Benedict in the uh, New York Shakespeare Festival's production of Much Ado About Nothing. Shortly thereafter, Catherine Hepburn watches this performance. Mm -hmm. And you have a blind date with the woman who I... Oh, I thought you were going to leave out the most important thing. No. No. I, I, I just, I don't bury the lead. I save it for the end when it matters. <laughs> I believe it's the woman who's sitting in the control room. Yes. Over there. I like, yes. I like the smile on your face. It makes me happy. Me too. It's a reflection of how happy it makes me. So we'll break this up in two parts. Okay. Walk me through the, the Catherine Hepburn um, asking you to talk about the glass menagerie with her after seeing your performance in this production. So she summoned me to her house in Turtle Bay in New York mm -hmm. to meet her. A summoned is a good word. Yeah. She seems like that's what she does. She doesn't have yeah, friends she over. Did. She summons her friends over. Yeah. I mean, that's from the outsider's point of view. Yes, I'm sure she just thought, let's have some friends over. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a kind of commanding presence there. So I felt summoned, and I went, and uh, her assistant and guardian and protector and loyal friend answered the door and ushered me into the living room, which was a very tall-ceilinged living room with big French windows looking out on the garden, which was a shared garden amongst a whole bunch of brownstones, similar brownstones. You remember the house? I remember the front door being very unprepossessing and small, and then this terrific living room, and I remember the windows and what was out there. And I was asked to be seated and to wait. And then there was a pause, you know, where you could have heard clocks ticking, if, but I don't remember if there were. Are you anxious? Are you nervous? Here? Of course. <laughs> yes. And then I heard, is he there yet? And she was coming down the stairs. And then, you know, the rest is a blank, actually. I, I don't remember what happened. After that, but it must have been okay, because she, she said it was all right for me to do the part. Did it make sense to you that this was happening to you? There are innumerable actors trying to perform, to make a living out of this craft. Did it make sense that Catherine Hepburn said, you know what, I think he is interesting. He is actually who should be doing this with me? That's a really good question, and I and uh, I wonder now, looking back, where I got the gall or the arrogance or whatever it was to think I deserved absolutely all the best parts in all the best plays all the time. I thought something must have gone terribly wrong when I didn't get the parts that I wanted. I mean, anybody who's in any ever been anywhere near show business knows that you get an advanced degree in rejection. It just comes with it. But I always thought, <laughs> I don't know where I, I don't know why, what was I, who was I to feel like there was some kind of injustice going on when I didn't get the parts that I wanted. Mm. But you don't strike me as someone who's arrogant. You used the term. No, arrogance. I wouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have thought that of myself either. But looking back, I do remember clearly the feeling 
of something terribly wrong having happened uh, when it was really just the standard thing that happens to all of us. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Maybe it's the third child thing. This mm-hmm. is, you know, that if you complain uh, enough about the injustice, things will be righted some way. You'll get your uh, way. Yeah. How do you two describe that first date? Lynn was a model at the time. A friend of hers had a dinner party who I knew already because we were in a movie together. And she had pretty much been telling both of us that we needed to meet each other and that the ground had been laid. Mm -hmm. And and then she invited us to dinner. And we didn't talk much. Um, Those are awkward situations. Well, there were a lot of other people at the dinner party. But I registered her immediately. And I think, I mean, this is my memory, is that we had our backs to each other, but we were pretty close together, maybe on the floor or one of us on a sofa and one of us on the floor uh, near the fireplace. And then then we walked for a long time after we left the dinner party. And then after we'd walked a very long way, we got in a cab, and I rolled down the window and I shouted, thank you, God. And Lynn didn't think, who is this? (laughs) Incredible, weird, strange person, let me out of here. Um, It's a bold move. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I like to say that I knew she was crazy about me from the first minute that she saw me, and and she likes to laugh at me about that. Mm. But I think we both recognized that we'd found our mate, and we just started having a really good time from the beginning. This is essential. (laughs) I've been told. I've heard. Yeah. You want to have a good time. Yeah, you want to be having a good time. It's not always easy to have a good time. No. I guess that's why it's so helpful to be powerfully attracted to one another Mm. and to be having a good time. Were you someone who believed that you could uh, be with someone to the end of this whole ride? I had no idea, and I think, you know, that was another thing that kind of helped us both. We'd both come out of really disappointing and wounding relationships, Mm -hmm. and uh, we didn't want to get serious about anything. We were both relationship shy, and I don't think that's a bad way to start at all. Okay, we're together. We seem to really like each other. This is all fine, Um, but let's not make any long-term plans. Let's not, you know, turns out that that can last a long time. Mm. Well, while you guys were just having fun, uh, you're in a film called The Great Gatsby. I don't know if you remember this, but... I remember it vaguely. Kind of a big deal. Um, I want to watch something together, if you don't mind. On what? It's right behind you. Nick? Is it really you? It is. Uh... (laughs) Oh, my... Dear lost love, I'm paralyzed with happiness. <laughs> Jordan, this is my second cousin once removed, Nick Carraway. Does that mean we kiss when we greet or no? I hope it means we do. Mm. Tom says you've just come from Chicago. Tell me everything. Do they miss me? The whole town is desolate. Oh, how gorgeous. <laughs> All the cars have their left rear wheel painted black as a morning wreath, and there's a persistent wail all night. Let's go back tomorrow, Tom. I love a persistent wail. Well, I love a drink. Come on, let's all have a drink. I've been lying on that sofa for as long as I can remember. You live across the Sound in West Egg. I know somebody there. I don't know a single person. 
You must know Gatsby. Oh, he's my neighbor. Gatsby? What Gatsby? Come on, Daisy. How do you like that? How did you like that? Well, I don't think I've seen that in, I don't know, how old is that movie? 1974. Yeah, that's a long time ago. What happens when you watch that? I don't know. I was curious, and it was a pleasure. We were all a lot younger. I remember, you know, the stakes were very, very high. I remember my friend Scott Wilson, who I, I became friends with on that film, and we were friends all our lives from that movie until he passed away last year. So I remember that. Is it strange watching all of you in that setting, remembering what you were like in your 30s, trying to make it work? Well, it didn't strike me as immediately strange, but I suppose if I were to sit on that memory for a while, um, stuff would come along. But more than just about that scene, it would be about the whole experience. My mother was an extra on that. As I told you, she was a painter. She, she said that uh, the director was the first man that she had ever met who had light coming out of his eyes. The way that film looks seems like there's light coming out of everyone's eyes. I think that was very much part of the idea. Yeah. Well, the rich are not like the rest of us is a line from the book, and I think you were supposed to see that and think that all that glitters is not gold. But, yeah, it was a great experience, a wonderful experience for me. The, the character Nick Carraway is very much um, an observer of the story. In some ways, he is the surrogate member of the audience in the film. Does that seem like the kind of person that you may be in alignment with in an off-screen well, I, I think it's something that I might have accused myself of until recently, but... How do you mean? Well, before I came to talk to you, okay, I was at a Fire Drill Friday demonstration, one of these Fire Drill Fridays that Jane Fonda has organized, mm -hmm. starting in D.C. during the last hiatus of Grace and Frankie. Um, and I went there to participate in them, and I really... Uh, I'm forever grateful to Jane for making me ask myself the question if if I really thought the things that I thought, why wasn't I saying them? And why wasn't I saying them as loudly as I could think of to say them? Hmm. And why was I saying them from the comfort, basically, of my own home, do you know? saying this is wrong and that shouldn't be and all that stuff, but but not really leaving the comfort of my own private orbit. And so I went to a couple in D.C. and got myself arrested for the first time for any kind of political protest for the first time in my whole life. I mean, it's part of the reason I'm here talking to you is because... This is not what I think I would have normally done before this year. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a real question. What is there of interest that I might be able to say that other people might want to listen to? Is a, That's a real question. There's plenty of things. Well, I'm glad to hear you say it. This is something actually Catherine mentioned, which is that you are at this place in your life right now, at the tender age of 79, where you are more vocal about the things you believe in, about the things you want to see in the world. Before you arrived at this place, do you think you were quiet or reluctant to speak publicly out of shyness or out of fear? Uh, well, no, not out of fear, I don't think. But out of... Uh being dubious that I had anything, uh, and being critical of a lot of people shooting their mouths off and being critical of the whole world of blah, blah, blah. This is my opinion, talking heads and all the whole society that we live in and thinking that 
keeping your peace might be a really good thing. And I still, I still do appreciate people that don't blab away like I am now. So I guess for the sake of the world is what I thought it would be a good idea to shut up. But now I, I just want to know what I think. And I don't know how much more time there is to find that out. And I don't, and what this whole Fire Drill Fridays thing made vivid was that you can't really know what you think unless you say it. Because mm-hmm. um, otherwise it just rattles around in your head and it, and it changes the way we were talking earlier about memories changing. It just meanders around. It doesn't have structure. It's fascinating to me that that you've arrived at this idea or this question of what the hell do I think at 79? I was having little epiphanies before that, but uh, this is different. Yeah. What feels different about it? Well, I'm talking to you, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are you more comfortable? Yes, because I don't think... and. This is funny, but I, I don't really mind if it turns out that I'm talking like an idiot. <laughs> if that's the case, I'd rather know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't found you to be an idiot. Well, that's nice. There's Thanks. still time. Well, of oh, yeah. And, and also when you listen to the tape, all that <laughs> stuff that could come to a different conclusion. There is something uh, topical that I'm reluctant to talk about, but I, I feel I must because I, like many people was first introduced to your work by way of Woody Allen in Interiors, Hannah and Her Sisters, especially Crimes and Misdemeanors. We had Alison Pill on last week, and she was wonderful in Midnight in Paris, and, and it's something we talked about, and I, I want to ask you about it, because you've seen the cycles of behavior in this strange town. My question is, how do you think we can talk about the work, when the work is tethered to a tarnished legacy? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I think that's a terribly important question to answer in any immediate way. Because if the, if the work is good, it will, history tells us that it will probably survive mm whatever scandal is attached to the creator's name. And people will say, well, well, they'll say whatever they say, but they'll say that's a great movie. The thing that's challenging for people who want to make stuff, like myself, or people who love film, plays, television, any kind of art, is that they believe in the current climate where we're at that they have to do some kind of erasure inside their heads, that they have to get rid of all these things because one person involved or the creator of this one thing did something bad. That's a different, a really much harder question, I think, which is what do we do now? Right. About now. Uh, This might be dodging the question, but I think, you know, you want to be a little careful about what you really know. What do you really know? Mm -hmm. Or what do you really know? Um, maybe the emphasis should be on that. At the same time, that question has given such a pass to so many powerful, mostly men, that it's not an adequate answer. Hmm. It's a it's a an alive quandary. We're going through a, just an enormous transition. It seems like it's daily life, but it's really huge, and. In the long run, and maybe even in the very short run, one of the great things, apart from hope about the future, is surprise. This could all crystallize in some new way that we haven't imagined tomorrow or even this afternoon. Or, you know, we don't know what's coming. And these are all things that need to be addressed and dealt with. And the people and the classes of people that have been taking it on the chin all these years, uh, Rise Up is a really good name for the movement. It, it's, a, it's astonishing. There hasn't been a revolt before this. Hmm. 
it's in dialogue with what we're talking about. But your father said that success is like smoking. Mm. Did you laugh when he said that? He wrote it. It was in a letter. When did you write it? When I was doing The Great Gatsby. We were in England, and he wrote me this letter saying that it, he was delighted with the success that I seemed to be having. And then he said, uh, I've always thought that the success was a, a bit like smoking. It probably wouldn't do any harm or much harm as long as you didn't inhale. It's just words to live by. Did you believe him? I think I laughed first. I think that was my first reaction. But laugh like, oh, that's right on the money. Yeah, I believe him. I believed him then, and I believe him. You know, and it's part of the reason for not doing interviews like this and things like that. Uh, it's very easy to think, well, that, that must mean something about moi. <laughs> it seems you have a real good handle on how to not let ego infect you. I don't think it's possible to have a really good handle on <laughs> not having your ego infect you. I think... I love when I say things and then you're like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, I think John Houston said that about sex, you know, that it's... When you're younger, it's it's like riding, trying to ride a wild horse and it pretty much does what it wants and and it never really goes away, but it's easier as you grow older. You ride it and it doesn't ride you and you would hope that that would be true of these other things like ego that sees you. Mm. But I'm not at all confident that it is. <laughs> uh, there is a question uh, Catherine had that I'm going to ask for her since she's far away. She said, what has a lifelong relationship with Shakespeare taught you about acting and about yourself? Um, it's a great question. I think my life would be greatly impoverished if it weren't for the wonderful opportunity to spend time with Shakespeare throughout my career from when I was in college until today. Uh, you know, people used to go around with the Bible and, and Shakespeare. Pioneers went out west with just those two books. I think they're pretty close to being enough. Shakespeare is just so enormously rich. And then to get to perform it, to um, have something of the sensation of what it's like to be able to see into the world the way Hamlet does, because after all, your mouth is moving and it's saying these words, you know, it's, it, it's a beneficial feedback loop into your whole nature, into your brain, into your body. I think it gets into your body. Mm. And it's, it does you a world of good. This is a, his way of understanding the world, which is in the language, built into the language, opposition and contradiction and metaphor and association and all of these things in the held in wonderful narrative and uh, bottomless. My son, uh, James, came back from doing The Midsummer Night's Dream one year and said that his favorite line in Shakespeare were Bottom's lines that ended in him saying, for it hath no bottom. And I think that's uh, true of Shakespeare's characters. They have no bottom. And here's the really curious thing. It turns out that in the history of his writing, as people have looked into it, that an awful lot of the plays that we attributed, attribute to him, and I'm not going to be able to give you the list of which ones, but... Many of them were done in collaboration, almost like writing for the writer's room of a sitcom. You, do, you write this scene, I'll write that scene, you, you do the other one. This is basically the narrative. And so these characters have contradictions in them because of who wrote the scenes that 
make them deeper than the kind of tidy characters that come out when it's all from one man's pen. Isn't that just glorious? It is. I had heard that, but I love you saying that. Because so much of your life kind of begins and ends with Shakespeare and, and, and your performance in New York and, all, and your ongoing pursuit of trying to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. We have to go soon, so we have to answer some big questions, or at least we have to ask them. Go ahead. What does your faith mean to you right now at 79? It means a lot to me. Um, it's one of the one of the questions that has been uh, in the air for me for a long time, and I wouldn't say that it was entirely not in the air now, but uh, I feel sure that God is and that Christ is his son. And then I don't know anything else, <laughs> not anything. And one of the things that I think is a trap for religion is that um, w- there are so many questions in the world, so many unanswerable and unknowable things, and we are all so fragile and vulnerable that one of the attractions of religion is the promise of making you feel okay in that circumstance. And what I think it does often is it slides over into saying, no, you're not in an uncertain world. You know positively what's going to happen. Everything is settled. Uh, just just do the things in this list and you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead, I think what religion has in it and can give you is feeling comfortable in your nearly perfect ignorance. Are you comfortable? Yes, and I think I'm a little more comfortable for having said it out loud to you. So I think this is doing me good. Mm -hmm. What are the new questions you've been batting around? I think the most obvious one is climate. And the climate emergency, which you and I have both been reading about, it's been as long as you've been alive, uh, longer than you've been alive, twice as long as you've been alive, maybe even more than that, maybe half a century. Uh, People have seen this emergency coming, warned about it, talked about it, and I've been reading all that stuff. And I've done this and that, and I've gotten gradually a little louder. It's not like... I was absolutely silent until the day before yesterday, and now all of a sudden I'm talking. But the dramatic change came with Fire Drill Fridays and getting kicked off the field at halftime at at the Harvard-Yale game um, this past year because the students there were trying to get uh, the university to divest from fossil fuel investments. This is a thing that needs to be done, that action needs to be taken on right now, immediately, yesterday, the day before. It's been a longstanding problem, and we've all worried it and watched it and all that stuff, and that won't do anymore. You're talking about future generations in many ways and how they're going to be able to live the kind of life that you led and that I hope to lead. Yes, It's certainly something I'm thinking about in terms of uh, whether to have children. Well, I go back to the the things I said before. There's hope. If having children represents hope to you, then uh, willy-nilly, even if you're headed for the end of the world, I think having children is a good idea because we live on hope. And there are way too many children in the world where we're eating up way too much of the Earth's resources, but maybe just one, you know, (laughs) for the hope. And then the other thing is, uh, and this backs up hope, is that you can be absolutely certain that you're going to be surprised uh, tomorrow, the next day, and by the whole outcome of this whole thing. It's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. So, I mean, Lynn and I made children without any um, 
reason to believe that we were ever going to be able to pay for them or any of that. But they really are very powerful motivators. <laughs> They'll get you out of bed every morning. I recommend them. I was wondering, that you did 390 episodes of Law & Order. I was like, that pays for a whole life, it's right? It certainly, well, it paid for a lot of college. You know, people listening are going to be like, now you mention Law & Order at the end of this goddamn thing? Where the hell was it the whole time? We have a couple more things. Actually, can I ask you about this? On a practical level, you have done theater, which is inherently impractical uh, monetarily. Mm -hmm. There is not a lot of money. In, even at the highest level, there is uh, some, but there's no guarantee. Right. Film and television, obviously, there is more. Mm -hmm. Law and order is basically, uh, I assume, lifetime set. But you don't strike me as someone who has ever made uh, a decision based on dollars and cents. I don't think that's entirely true. Uh, you got to make a living, right? And if you have children, they depend on you for their living for a very long time. So, yes, of course you do things in order to make money. Mm. My arrogance, the thing we were talking about earlier, was to think that uh, I should be able to be an artist and that it would be an injustice if I wasn't able to make a living right. and be an artist. Uh, I don't know whether I feel that purely now, but I think it was a very beneficial thing to think when I was starting out. I think it it's a real powerful animator, and it gives you uh, a sort of place to stand to make your case. You got to give me this job because I'm an artist. You know, it gives you a kind of argument. I have something for us. On the subject of hope, you're part of uh, a scene that I believe to be one of the most hopeful pieces of writing committed to film in the form's history. So I wanted to watch it for a second before we left. We are all faced throughout our lives with agonizing decisions, moral choices. Some are on a grand scale. Most of these choices are on lesser points. But we define ourselves by the choices we have made. We are, in fact, the sum total of our choices. Events unfold so unpredictably, so unfairly, Human happiness does not seem to have been included in the design of creation. It is only we, with our capacity to love, that give meaning to the indifferent universe. And yet, most human beings seem to have the ability to keep trying and even to find joy from simple things like their family, their work, and from the hope that future generations might understand more. Thank you for showing me that. If I'm honest, I'm not generally capable of watching that and not uh, crying. Again, complicated because... I have to publicly recognize that the person who wrote those words uh, represents a great deal of pain for some people listening. Whether what he did happened or not, it doesn't really matter because people are in pain. But, boy, you can't tell me that that isn't it right there. I agree. So my question to you is... Uh, Moral choices, some on a grand scale. Most of these are on lesser points. You're turning 80 this year. I imagine you're thinking about the decisions, the choices, grand and small. How do you think you've done? Well, the very last thing I heard my father say before he died, 
he was in a hospital in Connecticut, and the medication was giving him hallucinations and bad dreams, and and then he would have these moments of clarity, and he had Parkinson's, so he had a shake. So he had just come out of uh, a troubled sleep, and I had my face near his mouth so I could hear what he was saying. And the last thing I heard him say was, the young people must not be given the wrong idea. which probably has more meaning for me because it was my father talking, but uh, I uh, I'm going to need a lot of forgiveness, and thank God there is forgiveness in the world. I don't think that sets me apart from the great run of humanity. I think we all pretty big disappointments. But when you ask me how I think I've done, I, I my mind immediately goes to the enormous good fortune that I've enjoyed. So, you know, if the question is how to go, it's been going great. And long may it continue. But if you're asking me what the sum of my life is and how it ought to be judged. I hope the judge is really nice and very understanding. Otherwise, uh, we're all out of luck. Well, I can't promise you who that judge is going to be. I thought it was going to be you. I was kind of, I thought you said that at the beginning, that you were going to sort this all out for me. You don't need me as your judge. I'm very, I'm very disappointed now. I came all this way, you know, I know. This well, is not just around the corner. I know you came a long way. I did. A long way. <laughs> and um, I'm truly thankful that you did come this long way and sit with me. I'm grateful that this turned out to be you. Thank you very much. Anytime, Sam Watterson. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. So long. our show. Special thanks this week to Catherine Waterston. To learn more about her father, Sam Waterston, you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of episodes with a whole bunch of actors I think you may like, including Philip Baker Hall, Robert Forrester, Alan Alda, Laura Dern, Edward Norton, Tracy Letts, Kenneth Branagh, and many, many more. If you haven't done so already, Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to write us an email about this episode or any episode or, hell, about anything, feel free to do so at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. As always, this show is made possible by our incredible team, Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our editor is Andre Lin. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Design by Ian Jones. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. And the show is produced each week by Caroline Reebok. It was, by the way, Caroline's birthday yesterday, so... Happy birthday to Caroline. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back here next Sunday with Juliet Lewis. Until then, have a good week, everyone.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.